Well, good morning. See, they put us in the big room with the big organ that I'm not allowed to touch. Well, let me tell you a little bit more about myself, and I have a reason for going through this little bit of a journey here. Um, I grew up in Texas. Uh, my dad is a pastor of a four-square church. I'm uh, also ordained in the, the uh, four-square church. We're uh, cousins to Assemblies of God. And uh, I uh, grew up in, in that context, big metropolitan area. Moved from there to California, where, as uh, uh, David said, I worked at the King's, uh, what's now the King's University uh, with Jack Hayford in Los Angeles, California. So uh, a small county that has over 9 million people in it uh, from literally around the world. Uh, from there, I moved to uh, New Mexico. I was served in a uh, church there for a short time and then to Ohio. Now, I, I tell you about that, that journey because what I'm talking about today really came out of those contexts in which I was serving in. Let me just ask a question. When you look out at your congregations, do you see, does everybody there look like you? No. No, we, we all look out and we see people that are different than us. When we look at our communities, does everybody look like us? No, of course not, because we live in a very diverse culture. Whether you live in uh, Los Angeles, like I did uh, for six years, or Albuquerque, New Mexico, or Columbus, Ohio, where I'm at now, we live in a very diverse culture. Our churches are becoming more and more diverse, which is a good thing. There's a richness that uh, comes with that. But with that comes some challenges, because we speak cultural languages, right? We speak... Uh, a language which is culturally based. We play music which is culturally based. Uh, we talked about using images earlier, which are all culturally based. And if we're coming from divergent backgrounds, then how can we all speak the same language and give a unified expression? How can we lead people into an encounter with God in a unified expression? And so that's some of the things I want to talk about today. In fact, I might end up raising more questions than I answer today. But that's okay, because as, at least we're, we're talking about it, we're starting a conversation, and we can deal with, with these issues together. I'm going to, can I say just a quick uh, word of prayer as we get started with this? Lord, I just thank you for those who are here today, who are investing their time, Lord, in the kingdom. And Lord, we just recognize that, that your kingdom is far and vast, Lord, and that you've called us to minister to people in our communities and around the world. Lord, help us, give us some tools today, give us some insights today, how we can do that better, and how we can lead people into your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. So this, this uh, session came out of some of the classes I was teaching in Los Angeles as I, I looked at my uh, classes there and saw, again, people that didn't look like me, people from African-American background, people from Asian, Korean churches, from Hispanic churches. And as a class, we started talking about these things and, and, and struggling with these things and, and how can we uh, bridge these things. So that, that's, that's the, the uh, uh, environment that this, this came out of. So I'm just going to go through and, again, give you some ideas, some principles, and, and hopefully this at least gets you thinking about these, these uh, areas in new ways. And as we do this, we're going to look at Scripture. I think that's a great place to start. We're going to look and see what does the Bible say about these issues as well. Well, the first one, 
Look at Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. This is a picture, of course, of heavenly worship. This is a picture of the throne. And around the throne there will be people from every, lang- every language, every tribe, every nation, every type of groupings that you could put people in. There's going to be somebody there representing that group. A great book by John Piper called Let the Nations Be Glad. He breaks this down uh, hermeneutically and, and how that is in that scripture. But trust me, it's there. Any way that you can classify people by their language, by their tribe, by their culture, they are going to be represented around the throne. So my point is, if we are all going to be there, everyone's going to be there, then there is no group that's greater than anyone else. Because around the throne, the only thing that we have to stand on is our relationship with Jesus Christ and our submission to his lordship. So if that's the case, there is no culture here on earth that's better than anyone else. Therefore, if if no culture is inherently better than anyone else, then we should respect one another. Now let me preface, just stop right here and say, what I'm not talking here today, I'm not talking about some politically correct uh, type of principle here. Okay, I am am not talking uh, about um, multiculturalism in, in the liberal sense here. A lot of this is just practical. A lot of this just is just common sense. And sometimes we get hung up on our cultural things in church. If, if, um, if I were to have a, a whiteboard here, I, I, would, I would write th- uh, three words uh, that aren't in my presentation, but, but the words are story, structure, and style. I can break worship, what we do in worship, down to those three areas. Story, structure, and style. Story is the content of worship. It's, it's the, the who of worship. It's the unchanging of worship, the story of Jesus Christ, of who he is, that he is worthy of all praise and exaltation, that he desires a relationship with us. That is the unchanging element of worship. No matter where you go in the world, no matter where you go in time, that has always been and should always be, and we can't lose that. That's what we have to hold on to. That's the essential of worship. Now, we get to structure, and that's where we meet when we meet the order that we do things. And then we get to even style. We, as we move down that paradigm, we move in more cultural languages, whether it's musical style, again, whether it's the images that we use, whether it's the structure of our church buildings or the structure of our service. And so we need to make sure we're not confusing those cultural trappings of worship with the content of worship, with what's essential in worship, and elevating those uh, things about worship that are just cultural and not really biblical above that uh, which is essential. Again, having said that, that means that we all bring something a little bit different to the table as far as worship styles, as far as musical styles, as far as languages we use, that sort of thing. So that's what I'm talking about. But because, again... We're all, as Paul said, in, in Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. We should respect one another. Secondly, and this seems like a paradox to the first, we need to embrace the individual. We respect the culture from which they come from, but we see each person as an individual created being made in the image of God that Jesus died for and gave his life for. We, we embrace the individual. And... Uh, here in Matthew 15, 21 through 28, I won't read the whole passage for the sake of time today. 
But this is where the Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus. And, uh, you know, at first he says, he says, no, I've come to the, the house of Israel. You know the story. And uh, she presses in, and he even, he even says, you know, I, I can't give the children's bread uh, to the dogs. And, of course, her uh, great answer, we all know, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. And Jesus saw past that, and he was teaching his disciples that it's not about the cultural context that you're in. It's about ministry to people, to individuals. And he said, great is your faith. We need to see, even though we respect where people come from, we need to see them as individuals, that we're not ministering to a group as much as we're ministering to individual people. We're not trying to cater to a group, but we're trying to embrace individuals and bring them into our expressions of worship and give them expressions of worship that they can authentically uh, connect with the Father with. Thirdly, we can learn from each culture. I love this passage in 1 Kings 5, 6. It says, Now therefore command that the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is none among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Uh, Here is, of course, the building of the temple and uh, uh, they're getting the workers from Phoenicia to come and uh, uh, Lebanon and, uh, and uh, cut the timber for the temple. And he says, nobody knows how to do this. There's something unique about your people, your culture, that we can learn from. And we need to recognize that, again, that we, we speak in cultural languages, we speak as, uh, we use cultural uh, expressions and music and, and, and the arts, and that we each bring something unique to the table. We can each learn from each other. Uh, for instance, think about, just think about American music and how different it would have been without the African-American influence, without ragtime and jazz, spirituals, leads to gospel, leads to rock, leads to pop. Everything we do now musically is influenced by the African-American culture. And so there's a richness that has come to us all as Americans in that sense. So what can we learn from each other? Uh, where uh, I've ministered before in, in Texas and New Mexico and uh, California, there's been a large Hispanic population. When I served at uh, the Kings on the campus of the Church on the Way, there is a large, one of the largest uh, Protestant Spanish-speaking communities there. Uh, and... Uh, so there's things that the Hispanic culture brings in, in celebration and fiesta, la familia, the emphasis on family units, and these things that we can learn from. And, and they can learn from our culture in America that if you are holding several services, for instance, you do have to monitor the time. You do have to end at a certain time and, and, and know how to budget that uh, correctly. Again, this isn't a knock against anybody's uh, culture or practices, but it's just learning from each other the realities of, of ministry. So what can we learn from each other? What can we cherish that each other brings to the table? Next, we use diverse cultural expressions. And again, this is, could be music, could be language, could be arts, as authentic acts of worship. The verses there, Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, are the ones as musicians we like. It talks about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I don't have time to break this down, But uh, when he's talking about psalms, the Old Testament psalms, the hymns, new songs being written in the church, spiritual songs, improvised expressions by the Holy Spirit in the moment, uh, that really encompasses 
everything available to us. He's not, uh, he's not uh, negating any type of, of style or any type of expression. We have a rich a variety of expressions available to us. But we don't, what I'm talking about here as far as using diverse cultural expressions is not some sort of worship tokenism. It's, it's not that we're going to, again, cater to uh, certain segments just to make them feel better. The key there is that second phrase, as authentic acts of worship. Whatever we do in worship, whatever type of styles we use, whether, again, we're, we're using uh, the typical pop style in most churches or whether we're trying to broaden that style and bring in other types of expressions uh, to be uh, expressions of worship, it has to be authentic. It has to be true. It has to be uh, saying that we, we value you, we value your culture, and we all want to partake in that expression. We want it to be an authentic act of worship, something that is faithful. I like to call it a faithful act of worship. That's something that we can each engage our faith in, whether it's uh, something as simple as singing a song we all know in another language. I was, uh, there's a couple ways to do that. You can sing a verse in, in one language and sing it again in another language. I was at a conference so recently where we had, uh, uh, on the East Coast, uh, where we have a lot of Hispanic and Brazilian um, congregations in our movement. And during the worship, all the words were there in three languages. So that each person could sing the language that they're most comfortable in. And what was great about that is, is I know enough Spanish to pronounce it correctly. I might not know all the words, but of course the English words are right there. So what was great about that is, is I tried to sing in Spanish or even Portuguese, some which I'm less familiar with. And it's a, it's, it's, it was a, just a great experience of expanding my own vocabulary, not, not only in a, a literal sense, but in an a act of worship sense. That, Lord, you are the God of all people, of all nations, and I can express my worship even in a language that I'm not familiar with. Okay? And so that's another, that's another practical way of doing this. This also involves not only what we do as worshipers, but what we do as evangelists, what we do as far as outreach. We need to outreach to all parts of the community and the world. You know Matthew 28, 19, make disciples of all nations. So who are we reaching out to? Are there segments of our community that we have not reached yet? Uh, who are the immigrants in your community? That's kind of a, a big topic this day, but as a church, our response uh, should simply be, hey, who's here? Who do we need to reach? Who needs Jesus? And so who are those people in our community that we are reaching out to? Does our church reflect our community? Does our church look like the the people surrounding us? If not, then why not? And then are we reaching out to the uttermost parts of the earth? Uh, This reality came came home to me recently in in a real sense. My wife and I uh, live in a newer development um, on the east side of Columbus. and, And so right before Christmas, we invited all our neighbors uh, over for cider and hot chocolate. Some we'd met, some we hadn't. And we had about eight households uh, represented there. But as I was reflecting on that, it was a great time. And, and uh, uh, again, diverse, diverse neighborhoods. So there were people uh, there of, of different ethnicities. And it was, it, was, it was great. And we were getting to know each other, getting to know our neighbors. But I, as I reflected on that recently, I thought, you know what? There's a, a couple down the street who are Somali. And they weren't there. And now I'm thinking, how can I reach out to them? Is, is there something 
uh, cult, there was there a, or is there a barrier there that they didn't feel like crossing? I don't know. Uh, we're, we're in that mode, and, and this is something I'm getting used to in the Midwest, uh, living in the South all my life. Uh, we're in that mode of hibernation now, right? You know, winter and no one goes outside. So now I'm thinking, okay, when people do start coming out, okay, how do I engage that family? As churches, we need to be thinking that as well. How do we engage those segments of the community? And then once they come in, then we, this stuff really meets the road, right? It's this, okay, then how do we include them? How do we value them? How do we help them engage in worship? Then this not only affects our outreach, but it also affects our leadership. I want to read a passage here in Colossians chapter 4. And this is a little lengthy passage, but uh, uh, I want to look at the point that's made here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning you, whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers of the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras is one of you. A servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear with him the witness that he has worked hard for you and those in Laodicea and Herophilus. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greeting to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. So here, Paul is talking about his leadership team, right? And he starts out talking about uh, these, these uh, three brothers, and he, and he says, these are the Jews among me, right? These are of the circumcision. Then he goes in talking about the Greeks. So his leadership team was diverse. They reflected the communities that he was reaching. And then he even says at the end that he has a woman in leadership. So again, a diverse leadership. My question is, does our leadership on the stage look like the congregation? Again, I'm not talking about any type of quota system or any type of political correctness, but simply this. If you're seeking the best leaders, you're seeking the people with the best gifts in your church, they're going to come from every segment. They're going to come from every segment. So you need to identify those who are the best. And this also goes to, and I was, I was so, uh, it was great what um, Brother shared this morning, because it also goes to that type of feedback in ministry. When we're talking about reaching groups within our community, within our church, if we have somebody on leadership from that community, from that group, then they can speak to that better than we can. Make sense? So that we are getting, again, a full compass of, of viewpoints and ideas as we do that. So find the people uh, in your church who are gifted and look across the spectrum, and I guarantee if you do that, it'll naturally give its way to diversity in your leadership. This, this final point came out of the first time I taught this session. Again, I was, I was in Los Angeles, a uh, very diverse student body, and, and we were talking through these points, uh, talking about different, different challenges that are, are, are arisen. And one of my students who, uh, is, uh, his mother was from Central America, his father's African-American, and he was sharing some of his story and some of the challenges he faced growing up uh, in that context and he made this great point. He said, you know what, I, I struggled with my identity in a lot of ways growing up. But when I came to Christ, I took on something that, 
that superseded all of that. And that is, it's no longer about the culture of my background, of my ethnicity, of, of the, the nation I'm from. But I take on the culture of Christ. And when he said that, that just brought this whole thing together. And I said, I'm going to use that. Because that just ties everything together. There's something that supersedes all the diversity. In fact, the worship team even talked about it. You know, some from Michigan, some from Ohio. Again, I'm from Texas. Go Longhorns. Okay? There's something that supersedes all those things that divide us when we are in the body of Christ. And as he put it, it's the culture of Christ. It's, it's the mind of Christ. It's that we serve one God. And though there's, though there's diversity among us, that, again, that diversity, we see it in heaven. It's apparent in heaven that every tribe, every nation, every tongue is represented there. That whatever struggles we have in, in trying to figure this out and trying to figure out how do I reach across for outreach, how do I include people in, a, in, a, uh, in an expression that, uh, that honors them and honors their language, honors their uh, style, uh, whatever it is, that there is a unity that comes through the Holy Spirit, just as the body is one as many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We are all made to drink of one spirit. See, ultimately, it's, it's the leading of the Holy Spirit that we need. That crosses these cultural uh, barriers, that gives us wisdom in the midst of these things. And, and, and again, I, I realize that sometimes these things are uncomfortable to talk about in our culture. And I realize that uh, sometimes we, we, we might even refrain from engaging somebody who's different than us in these discussions. But I encourage you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to do that. To find out how do we broaden our, our uh, worship expression experience so that not only it encompasses more uh, of, of these cultural expressions, but so it just makes it richer. That's one of the, I'll be honest, as a musician, that's one of the things I, I notice when I go into a lot of churches that all the music sounds the same. How do we, how do we broaden that so that there's a richness to our cultural expressions? Because we serve a God who is, is far greater, far more, uh, he's beyond our imagination. And, and to try to just worship him and connect with him in one certain style, one certain way, I, I, think, I think is limiting of how we can encompass him. I'm going to pause here. We, we, have, we have some time, and, and we're going to go on and talk about multi-generational in a second. But before I, before I leave this, let me, let me just see if there's any questions anyone has at this point. Comments? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think I would, you know, just as, as if we're leading children in worship that are native English speakers, they, they you know, my, I have a daughter who's, uh, she'll be two in, in April, and, and sh- her vocabulary is just now starting to come on, and so... Uh, you know, we sing songs with her and such, and, and obviously she doesn't, she can't say all the words, but, but that's part of the process. So in, in that context, 
I would, I would, one practical thing I would say to do is, is take a song that you have that's in English, find out their language, find somebody who is fluent in that language, and go ahead and translate it and sing it in both. And that way you're, you're doing two things. You're, you're providing educational service. Uh, if, if English is not the first language in their home and you're helping them develop that. But again, you're, you're giving them an expression of worship that they can relate to from the culture of their home and in the broader culture that they're living in now. Okay? And, and let me just say one thing about children's ministry, and, and I'm going to mention this when we talk about multi-generational. Uh, children can worship. Okay? Don't uh, try to teach children, again, authentic worship, what it means to encounter God. And, and it, so it's not just, and, and most of you know this, it's not, ministry to children is not just babysitting, but even in the music section of that, teach them about worship. Teach them how to worship through music. The songs may be simpler, but the, the expression in the heart is, is, is the same, right? All right? Any other questions on this before I move on? Go away. There we go. Yeah, balance is is a good word there. Uh, I think, again, this is Dr. Corsier's personal opinion, but I think that a local church uh, repertoire of worship music should be a balance between the broader, what God is doing on a broader scale among the the global Christian community. So, yes, find out, you know, uh, the latest top 40, if you will, you know, and, and it, it's not about popularity. It's, 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 it's really about, hey, what are the expressions that God is, is moving through in a broader sense in the body of Christ? And, and uh, be aware of those, okay? Um, but then the, the other side of that is knowing what God is speaking to your local congregation. And as I said, that you're reflecting your local congregation and uh, not just doing a, a cookie-cutter thing. Now, uh, it, there's a careful balance here because, you know, you, you, like you said, you can seek to be so original that um, you, you're, if you're a songwriter, you only do your own songs while someone coming in has no idea, um, you know, what those songs are. So, so it's a careful balance. You have to, uh, as a worship leader, always be submitted to your pastor and what their vision for worship is. So it's something that you can uh, certainly discuss with them. Uh, who the musicians are on your team is going to be a limiting factor because they might only can play in certain styles. And so uh, discovering how you can uh, broaden that um, is another topic. Uh, does that help? I, I know I'm just scratching the surface there, but, uh, you know. And maybe we can talk about that more later. So, all right. Any other questions? Yes. Slowly challenge them, saying, hey, we're going to try this 
So for instance, I'm going to talk about this in a minute when we get to multi-generational, but, but say you have a worship team that, that uh, they're, they're only used to playing... Um, I'll, I'll, you, <laughs> normally, I, a, year, a few years ago, I would have said only used to playing hymns and taking the contemporary, but it's, it's really reversed now. Uh, you have a worship team that's only used to playing contemporary, and yet you want to do more traditional style, for instance. Well, there's some intermediate steps that you can take them through. So uh, Matt Redmond's, for instance, uh, 10,000 Reasons is a good bridge between a traditional hymn and a modern chorus. Okay, So use that song to bridge to then doing something more traditional. Uh, again, if you're wanting to expand styles, uh, again, you have a really pop style, and, and you want, well, we want to do something that's uh, more R&B. Well, there's, again, intermediate steps that you can go in that. So, so work with them slowly um, in that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I was, uh, you're, you're uh, making my next points for me, but I appreciate that. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of mixtures, uh, Chris Tomlin, Tommy Walker, David Crowder have made a lot of great arrangements of traditional hymns that, that mesh with uh, contemporary bridges and, and verses and, and that sort of thing. So, uh, anyway, all right, any other questions on this before we move on? Yes, ma'am. Right, I'm, and I'm not saying you do this to every song, okay? But uh, take a song and uh, find a translation of, you know, say it's a, uh, I'd make it a song everyone knows well in English, but then find a translation in, in another language and say, hey, we're going to do something a little different this morning. We're going to praise God in tongues, you know. Uh, and uh, no, we're not going to use the heavenly language. We're going to use another tongue. And, uh, and, and go back and forth between those, and, and be sure your worship, obviously be sure your worship team, the singers, uh, can sing it correctly and, and pronounce it correctly, and, and this is a great way to incorporate it. If you don't have, uh, you know, incorporate those who speak that language, who are native speakers, say, hey, teach our people this, and you're valuing them, and you're valuing their, again, cultural expression, and then you're, you're giving that as an authentic act of worship to the whole congregation. Um, again, if you, if you were alternating between the two, you're going to sing it, sing it once in English and once in, in Spanish, for instance. Um, I wouldn't necessarily do that, okay? Uh, if, again, I, that's why I'd pick a song that everyone knows pretty well in English, and then, so that they, even though they're, they're, they're singing the Spanish, they know what they're saying, even though they're not, they don't speak that language. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Other questions real quick? Everybody? All right, now we're going to move on to multi-generational. 
And this one can be as, as prickly sometimes as, as including multiple cultures. Um, and, but, but, but you know what I'm talking about. People are living longer. We have more generations. My, my grandmother uh, passed away um, last year. Actually, it's almost two years ago now. She was 100 years old when she passed away. And uh, uh, I, I thank God that my daughter was just born and she got to meet her uh, before she passed. But we look at our congregations and we do see grandparents, great-grandparents, multiple generations represented in our uh, congregations. So how do we, again, include those and value those and uh, give everyone a unified expression of worship? Because uh, it, it's funny, my, my wife is eight years younger than I. But even eight years apart, she grew up listening to different bands than I did. She knows different music than I. It was an education. And I'm a musician. Again, I have a doctorate in music. But when we met and got married, I had an education in, in contemporary music because I, uh, I knew what I liked. And, and, and really, it's not so much that we, we know what we like, but we like what we know. And so I, I liked what I knew, but she had different likes. And so uh, even people born a few years apart have different musical experiences than uh, than others. And so, how do we bridge those gaps? Well, look at Proverbs twenty-two twenty-eight. It says, do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. This is about respecting the past. And, and of course, this, this is talking about that there were uh, stones and landmarks that were placed at, uh, for reasons. And don't just go and, 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 and move those because there was a reason that was set there. Maybe it's marking a boundary. Maybe it's a property line. Maybe it's, it's marking a place where God did something great in the history of the people. And that's there to remind us of that. And so don't make changes just because you want to make changes. Find out why whatever it is was, was there in the first place. Find out the history of that. And, uh, for instance, a friend of mine uh, uh, took a church in, uh, in uh, Worcester. And uh, he went in and he said, if, when, he, when he first went in there, there was this display at the entrance of the church. It's like the first thing that people saw when, when, when he went in. And he said it was really kind of dated. It really didn't mesh with, with him, his style of ministry, or, or where he wanted the church to go. But, but this is an older historic church, and so he, so he didn't want to just change things. He wanted to find out. He said, I needed to find out what that was, why that was there. And so uh, after being there about a year, um, he had found out that who made this this display, and, and it was one of the longtime members, and, and he had actually uh, passed on. And he was standing there looking at it one day with, with the widow of this, this man who'd created this. And she turned to the pastor and said, you know what, this, I you know, really uh, appreciate that the church has, has left this up, and it honors my husband, but, you know, I think it's time that, that we take this down and, and do something different. If, if, my, if my friend would have just went in and said, well, this doesn't match, this isn't where we're going, and just tore that down, he would have ruined a relationship there. Okay? My, my point is, again, re- respect the past. Know why things are done. Don't just make changes to make changes. And so, again, find out as a worship leader, find out, talk to those older members, find out the expressions of worship that they grew up with, find out what they enjoy. A lot of them 
probably do enjoy the contemporary things as well. Okay? So, but uh, to get to know the, them. But also, we not only respect the, the past, but we embrace the future. Jeremiah thirty-one seventeen says, There is a hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. And you know the context of this at the beginning of the, the captivity and Jeremiah when it uh, lived to see the, the end of that. But he's saying there's a future, there's a hope that there's, God has, has things for us still as a people in the future. We, we, we respect the past, but we can't live there. We can't keep going back to there because if, if that's all we see, then we're never going to see where God is, is leading us to. So we have to have, be forward-looking. We have to embrace where God is leading. We realize that we build upon a foundation that was laid before we got there. Just as, as, as worship, I, I, I love to tell my, my college students, I, I say, look, worship didn't start last week with the latest Bethel song. Okay? It didn't start in the 70s with the praise and worship Jesus people movement. Okay? It, didn't, it didn't even start the, the, the Pentecostal movement. Worship started at the Garden of Eden as God walked with Adam and Eve and was in relationship with them. And it continued through the altars of Abraham. It continued through the tabernacle of Moses. It continued through the Psalms of David. It continued through the, the uh, hymns and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs of the early church. It continued through the Middle Ages and the chants. It continued through the chorales of Luther. It continued through the hymns of Watson Wesley, the gospel songs of Fanny Crosby, on into the present day. We are stepping into a stream that has always been flowing from eternity past and will flow into eternity future. So we respect the past, but then we step in the stream and go forward into the future. So we, we, again, we have a firm foundation, a firm footing, but we're reaching forward. And those two things are held in paradox. And, and these are our guiding principles as we move forward in this. Well, how do we, how do we uh, use, uh, live this out practically? Number three, we use the mature. Notice I don't say old. We use the mature as teachers, as mentors, and models. And we see this in, in Paul's talking to Titus. He says, older women, likewise, be reverent in behavior, not as slanderers or slaves or too much wine. They are to teach what is good and train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. The greatest resource that we have in our churches is the wisdom that those with life experience have. I remember I was at a, a, a small group setting in a, in a home one time, and, and the uh, uh, host's parents were there, and, and their, their, their parents were in their 80s. And we were just going around and, and telling how each of us came to know the Lord, our salvation experience. And we got to them, and, and they started talking about this, and it, it dawned on uh, us that, that these uh, uh, people had been walking with the Lord far longer than any of us had been alive. You know, we're, we're talking 60-some years. And, 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 and those young people who were there who, who were saved less than a year ago and are struggling with things, it, it gave them great hope. That's like, wow, somebody can actually walk with God for decades and be faithful and live this out. There's a wealth of experience and knowledge that comes from those who are more mature. And I'm not just talking, again, about those older in age. This could be a college student. A college student might have some experience and maturity that they can pass on to a high school student, a high school student, to a junior high student. So it's wherever they're at. In the context of a worship team, we have older musicians who've been around and playing for years. There's wisdom that they can pass on to the younger. Okay? 
uh, as a worship leader, I always tell my uh, students who are worship leaders, you should be striving to replace yourself. You should be discipling another worship leader. They should be right there beside you so that one day you can step aside and say, go for it. Okay? So we need to identify those who have the wisdom, who have the maturity to do that. But we also use the young as leaders, workers, and facilitators. And you know the passage from 1 Timothy, let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, and love, and faith, and purity. So who are those? We embrace the young. We don't say, no, 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 you're, you're too young, too uh, inexperienced to play worship. They may not be ready for a Sunday morning, but find a place for them. Find a place in the youth group. Find a place, a, a, a small group meeting that needs someone to come in with a guitar. Okay? Find a place so that they get experience. Use them. Use their energy. Use their passion. Okay? And the great thing is we're not using people. By the way, this is a great, great principle one of my uh, mentors taught me. We don't use people to get work done. We use the work to get people done. We find places for the young to serve because as they serve, God is going to do something in and through them. And you're going to be developing them so that when you do have somebody on the uh, uh, Sunday morning worship team that has to move away, oh, how are we going to get a new bass player? Hey, we got this kid in youth group who's been playing for a couple of years. He's tearing it up. Let's give him a shot, okay? And so you're developing leaders as you do that. So look for the young that you can develop in that way. Number five, sing hymns. And again, going back to Colossians and Ephesians, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, um, I could have said here, sing the vast variety of both contemporary and traditional expressions that we have in the church. But we, again, tend not to have a problem with singing the contemporary. Okay? It seems that the uh, lifespan of a, a song in, in the modern church today is about six months. And then it's cast away and then we're going on to the latest latest hit. So I have to remind people, sing hymns, sing, remember the traditional songs. There's a reason that uh, a mighty fortress is our God is still around today. Okay? Uh, there's, a, there's one of the reasons is it's, it's foundational. Okay? It's, it speaks of foundational truth. You see, uh, and I don't have time to totally unpack this, but there's a value in the old song. It gives us stability. It gives us that foundation. It, it talks of truth that's been around and that will be around. It reminds people that Christianity is not some modern, feel-good, uh, self-help uh, fad, that it is an ancient faith grounded upon the revelation of God in Scripture. The old song does those things. It also gives us comfort. I've... Uh, uh, had the honor to, to play and, and do music at a number of funerals. Uh, 90% of the time, when I do music at a funeral, I'm asked to do traditional hymns. Why? Because they give comfort. They, they, there's something that, that, that's familiar about them that, uh, that people can rely on. It's that solid foundation. So we, we need traditional songs. Now, I'm not saying, again, that we all need a big pipe organ in our churches. Whoops. Not, we don't need a big pipe organ in our churches. We can reinvent the hymns. We can rearrange the hymns. And I mentioned some songwriters that are doing that. Okay, we can contemporize them. But there's an expression, a richness of expression there. Now, again, we also need the contemporary because the new song takes us to new territory. 
The new song is a song of breakthrough. We need to listen to what the Holy Spirit and his creativity is telling the church today through prophetic young songwriters or older songwriters. Don't need to put an age on that. But what is the Holy Spirit saying to the church today? What are the new territories that we need to, to, uh, to break through? But sometimes breakthrough, sometimes a new song can be a little chaotic. Sometimes the new song can, can uh, uh, be a little unsteady. So we need the old song to bring us back into unity. And again, by old song, I, I don't necessarily mean something that's 200 years old, uh, Wesleyan um, hymn. It, it could be a song that's 10 years old that everyone knows and sings. I'm, I'm still amazed at my, my college students when I will break out a song that I don't think is old and I'm in my mid-40s and, and they look at me like I've never heard this before. <laughs> so uh, so I, I try to do a good, good job of, of, of teaching them a wide variety of expressions. So, so don't be afraid to go back and, hey, we sang this song a few years ago. Well, we should pull this back. Okay? Again, it goes back to asking the Holy Spirit for his guidance as we do these things. Number six, we want to rediscover or reinvent tradition. 2 Kings 23. And, and there the passage talks, of course, about the book of the law that was discovered as they were renovating the temple. And they found out that they were not observing the Passover as they should. So it says there that they... They held a Passover, and it was unlike any Passover that had been, been done since the time of the judges. They rediscovered a tradition. You see, when, when, the, um, when the praise and worship, uh, contemporary praise and worship movement in the 70s, the Jesus People movement, when that all was happening, uh, there was this, this uh, reaction against tradition, that tradition was old and tired, it was dead, that there was no meaning to it, no, no, no life to it. Well, I want you to consider this. Every tradition in the church at one time was new. At one time, it was a brand new faithful expression of the people, filled with passion as they were expressing their love to God. And over time, we, we do things and we repeat things and, and we institutionalize things. And so we start doing things out of rote and it loses that passion. It loses that original intent. And sometimes we just need to go back and rediscover why that was. Again, it's like the, the hymns. And one of the, I'm teaching a class right now in, uh, at Valor um, about the history of, of worship music. It has a really academic title called Hymnology. But we're just going through, starting with the Bible, and just going through the history of worship music. And I love uh, telling the students the stories. Like Joseph Scriven, who, who uh, lost not one but two fiancés before he wed, could wed either of them. One died in a horsing horse accident, another one died of uh, tuberculosis, and yet he still wrote, what a friend we have in Jesus. All to him are griefs to bear. Knowing the original intent of the expression, whether it's a song, whether it's, whether it's a creed, whatever it is, even, even things that are, are come to us directly from scripture, for instance, communion. How, how often do we just, okay, it's, it's time to do, it's that time of the month, or uh, that we're going to do communion, and let's, let's pass the cups. Let's, every time we do that, we need to reinvent it. And I don't mean put a new meaning to it. Again, story, structure, style. The story doesn't change. But how can we make it fresh? How can we make it alive again? How can we retell the story in such a way that, that people can, can uh, uh, grab onto that and, and experience a life that is offered through that? And and it could be something as simple as, as not just passing the cup and plate this time, but can we, have a, can we set up a station where people are to come at the foot of the cross and experience and partake of the body and, and blood? 
So what are those traditions that we can reinvent, we can reinvigorate from, again, songs to the sacraments? Lastly, we need to be aware of new trends and their significance. Matthew ten sixteen said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I remember uh, something that uh, Jack Hayford said once. He said, Be aware of the con and contemporary. We're not talking about being on the cutting edge just to be on the cutting edge. Okay? In fact, I would, I would say that there, there's, when we're, what we're talking about here, there, there's two dangers that we can get into. There's an, it's just as big of idolatry to make, um, again, newness, cutting edge, hipness, all that, an idol. And we can also make nostalgia an idol in looking back. Okay? Again, this all has to be guided by the Holy Spirit. But we do need to be aware, of, again, what God is speaking to the church at large. What are the new trends out there? What are the new songs? What are the new styles? Just as, as it was shared this morning that we live in a very visual culture. We need to be aware of the importance of that. And how do we then access that and use that as authentic acts of worship, as authentic ways of outreach? So be aware of trends. Be aware of their significance. Be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Again, we're not called to be hip and cool, right? We're called to be holy. We're called to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As worship leaders, we're called to facilitate an encounter with the living God. But in order to do that, again, we use cultural expressions. We use the language of the day. So if you do sing a, a, a going back to hymns, if you do see a tradition, sing a traditional hymn, and there's a word in there that doesn't make sense, like bulwark, what does bulwark mean? Well, what you do is say, we're going to sing the song which talks about God's protective hand on us today, that he is our bulwark, he is our shield, he is our protector. And it, what, was same, what was true for Martin Luther uh, 500 years ago is true for us today. Let's sing this together. So, be aware of new trends. We stand on the foundation of the past. We respect the past, but we look forward. We've got a few minutes left. Any questions concerning this? Or anything else to do with worship? Yes. Well, my first question would be, how are they using it? Um, yeah, I, I would, uh, that, that would be, I would have a lot of questions about that. Um, I mean, my, my initial reaction whenever, um, and I, I've heard that question put in another way, what about taking a, a, a secular tune and changing the words? Uh, my response is, is simply, there's such a richness in the, in the body of Christ, and creativity in the body of Christ, that there's really no need to go there. Um, and, and I understand if it was an outreach, some sort of outreach where, where that music is being played to, you know, uh, and again, I don't make a dichotomy between necessarily that, that secular music is bad and Christian, you know, I, I'm not, we're not talking about that. There, there are certainly uh, expressions in the, in the quote-unquote secular world that, that are innocuous and, and, uh, and 
and we can uh, use those for God's, God's purpose. There's a redemption that can happen there. But in the context of worship, uh, my question is, is you're, you're at least opening yourself up for questions like what we're discussing now. And there's, there's, I don't see any need to go there because there's uh, as good, if not better, expressions with, within the body of Christ for that. So uh, that doesn't give you a definitive answer, but that's, <laughs> that's how I look at it. Someone else? Nope. Oh, over here. Is more presentational. Right. Right. Yeah, and that's why I asked, you know, what, what are you using it for and what's the, what's the context of that? So I think, I think attitude, context, motive are, are key things. So, right. Any other questions? Yes. I think, um, well, first of all, uh, as, again, I've said this before, as, as worship leader, you have to be uh, in agreement with your pastor. Uh, you have to find out what the pastor's vision for worship is, and are they wanting to move forward, moving move in a direction, different direction? Because if, if they're not wanting it, then you're, you're, that's not a battle you want to fight, first of all. Okay, but, but let's assume that they do. Okay, then, then how do you... Uh, make those steps again. You do it slowly, <laughs> just like I said. If you, if you if you have a congregation um, that's still only seeing traditional hymns and you want to take it to more contemporary, you don't next week do God's Great Dance Floor. Okay, with Chris Tomlin. There's some intermediate steps. Okay, so in order to to get them to move to new expressions, whether it be a new style, whether it be a new, uh, you know, maybe you have a congregation that. That's they're not physically expressive at all. They just stand there. Well, first of all, are they singing? That's the first thing. Get them to sing. Then maybe get them to raise their hands. You're not going to get them to dance up and down the aisles in you know in one week or one year. Okay. So I would say find those intermediate steps. Uh, again, if you have a worship team and they're just they're just used to the songs and and not wanting to break out, I think I think there's there's uh, a prophetic aspect of leadership where you have to challenge people to. Uh, go to new areas and, and try uh, n- uh, new things, and 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 just you know, as a leader, say, hey, this not 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 in a coercive way, but say, hey, this this is where we're going, and and get you know, and get their input. Don't don't just say, well, you know, you're going to do this or else, but say, okay, how can we do? How can we go there? What can we uh, help you? And, and uh, so, there's some practical things of of um, you know, maybe uh, taking them to a worship seminar where there's workshops and, and uh, for their instrument and, and, and learning new techniques. Okay? If you have people who are just rigid and don't want to change, uh, then that's something you have to deal with as well. We, uh, I'll give you one practical thing as far as 
uh, if you have people uh, on your worship team and, and they're, they're, just, they're just not working, but they've been there for years and years and years. Uh, in one context I was at, we, we, we faced this, and so uh, we had a new pastor come in, and, and he'd been there a couple of years, so he wasn't, again, changing things right off the bat, but, but we had realized this. And so what we did is we, we re-auditioned everybody. Nobody was grandfathered in. Okay, everybody had to try out again, and uh, so that was the opportunity to, to say to a few, "Hey, you're you're, you're not going the direction that that uh, we feel God leading us, and uh, we want you to serve in, in other areas." And some people might get offended; they might leave, and some people might find a new area to serve in. So uh, that's again another way to handle that. Okay. Other questions. Uh, not that I know of, because um, I looked, actually looked uh, not too long ago as well. Um, so uh, a good resource, uh, trying to think of a, uh, I know one good resource is leadworship.com, which is Paul Balash's, uh and, and he will, I know he does some as well. I'm trying to think of the other one. Um, I don't know if they're still around. There was one called the Worship Institute. Um, but I don't know if they're still uh, doing that. So. Yes, back there. Mm-hmm. So, so she's asking how to how to bring people into a worship atmosphere as a congregation. Um, I'm trying to figure out a way to because we're running out of time to answer this quickly. Um, question: When the children of Israel were at Mount Sinai, okay, we often think they were there to receive the law, right? Well, I'm not going. I'm just going to answer the question. They were there for about three months at the most receiving the law. But they were there 18 months. What were they doing the other 15 months? They were building the tabernacle. They were setting a pattern of worship. Listen, you can teach people the do's and don'ts very quickly. It takes longer to cultivate a culture of worship. So what you're asking is, is not something you're going to achieve overnight. Okay, so that's the first thing. Be patient. Okay, uh, it, 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 it's... it's Modeling worship from the, from the leadership. And not just on the stage either. The leaders in the congregation. Make sure they understand worship. Make sure they're entering in and modeling worship. It's, it's teaching about worship. It's, it's, it's going to be a long process. In fact, uh, uh, Jack Hayford, uh, pastor of Church in the Way for, for about 40 years, he said, I had to revisit this about every three years. Okay? I, there had to be a renewal of worship in our congregation uh, at, at least that often, okay? So it's something that, that will take time to develop and something that you have to keep revisiting and revisiting. And, and I can probably point you to some, some more resources on that as well, okay? All right, I think we are, are we out of time? Whoops. Thank you.